are having an impact on reducing abortions, but they don't seem to be having an impact on births. In this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott, I interview Philip Levine, professor of economics at Wellesley College. Philip is a uh, graduate of Princeton University's PhD program in economics in the, uh, I think it was either 1989 or 1990. And if you've been listening to my podcast, you know that I consider Princeton University's uh, PhD program, particularly in uh, labor, in that period of time to be sort of the ground zero for the growth of causal inference. That's when Orly Ashenfelter was there, David Card, Alan Kruger, Josh Angris, Bob Lalone, and many, many others. And I wanted to talk to Philip Levine because um, first of all, he's had a very interesting career. I've followed him for a long time. He, he's been a big influence on me. His work on sex and abortion uh, is stuff that I've read very closely and and benefited from but i also just wanted to learn more because he had sort of been there uh as part of this sort of growth and in the credibility revolution himself sort of saw it when it didn't exist but was part of that department and then watched it grow in this talk we in this interview we talk about growing up in new york sort of in a uh, a middle-class family uh, experiencing a lot of economic hardships uh, due to the business cycle and how it affected his father's job, his interest in uh, labor from a very early age, public policy, and how he ultimately ended up sorting into economics as a result of uh, uh, basically a research project that he did with Olivia Mitchell at Cornell University. Uh, we talked about going to Princeton, we talked about just the the luck that he had there and, and things that, that happened and uh, the difficulty of being a graduate student as well as um, just just his overall career and the things that make him happy uh, as, a, as a professor. Uh, we also talk about his new work uh, on education and a new book of his and a nonprofit that he runs that tries to help uh, students learn uh, how much fina financial aid they're, they're uh, eligible for. It was really a, it was really a great interview for me. Um, uh, Phil really sort of opened up and shared a lot about himself and his life, and it was it meant a lot to me to hear it um, and to get to to be the person he was talking to. And so I hope that this interview is interesting to you as you continue to think about economics and economists specifically and their own lives. I hope that this is an interesting interview for you. Thanks, Scott Cunningham. I'm the host. Okay, well, this is a real pleasure um, uh, to have a chance to to have uh, Philip Levine, um, a professor of economics at Wellesley College, uh, here on the podcast. Uh, Phil, I've actually we've only we've met before one time at a conference a million years ago, but this is our I've been a long time admirer, so it's really fun to get to meet in person for an extended period of time a little bit more. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Okay, well, so for the sake of the, the listener, can you just say uh, 
you know, your, your name and your title. And, and I said all this stuff, but your name, your title and, and who pays your, your uh, salary. <laughs> so I, uh, I'm Philip Levine. Uh, our friends call me Phil. Uh, I am the Catherine Coleman and A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Economics at Wellesley College. Oh, okay, great. And you've been there for how many years? Uh, this is my 32nd year. I've been here for a long time. 32nd year. Okay. All right. So, so let me get started. So tell me, tell me, where did you grow up? So I am from uh, Syracuse, New York. I actually, uh, my family lived in the city of Syracuse for the first five or six years of my life. And then we moved to a suburb called DeWitt um, or I attended Jamesville DeWitt, the Jamesville DeWitt school system. Mm. Um, you know, my parents lived there for you know, 50 years after that. Mm. Okay. Okay. And you, your mom and dad, what did they do for a living? So, you know, I grew up, uh, so first of all, it was mostly going to be my father who was working regularly. Um, this is, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and my mother's labor force participation was growing over time as the world was changing back then, mm -hmm. um, doing miscellaneous things. But, you know, my father's income was sort of the main source of family support. Uh, he worked in the retail trade sector. Mm -hmm. um, he did different things, but for a lot of my you know, formative years, he was working sort of, you know, the manager of a clothing department at a local version of something like a Target. Mm. Um, you know, neither of my parents, both my parents went to college, uh, started college, but neither of them finished college. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, mostly we were, you know, living off of my father's income. Got it. I would, I'd say that, you know, one thing that was important for me growing up was that, uh, you know, that's not a very stable sector of the economy. Uh, and in particularly during that period of time, there was a lot of cyclical fluctuations going on. Mm. So, you know, it definitely was the case that every time that there was a recession, my father lost his job. Oh, wow. Um, and so, you know, I definitely got an insider's view of the value of the unemployment insurance system. Wow. Uh, you know, during those years, it definitely helped us out. Did y'all move ever from Syracuse? No, we were in, you know, we stayed in the same house. There were definitely, I can remember the conversations about the possibility of potentially losing the house. Right. Um, but that never ended up coming about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was stressful. You remember your dad being stressed out? And your mom. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was not an easy, you know, some of those periods were not easy. Yeah, my dad, um, my dad did all of the payroll for this small town in Mississippi on this massive computer. Uh, and then the personal computer came that and it just seemed like real. I remember us getting a personal computer. Uh, and then it wasn't many years later that dad had like all those contracts that just dried up. Yeah. So, you know what? Uh, I, I was obviously little at this during this period, but like mm. you know, Syracuse was not a great place to be mm. in terms of economic development during this period. I mean, all of the major industrial employers closed mm. during this period. And, you know, so what used to be a thriving blue collar town, mm. actually the economy just collapsed. Uh. Uh, 
you know, as the Chrysler factory closed, the GE factory closed, Bristol Myers merged with Squibb and left town. Mm. Carrier air conditioning used to have its national headquarters in Syracuse. Mm. Uh, for those of you who know sports, that was that why it was called the Carrier Dome, where mm. uh, the you know football team and basketball team play. Mm. Um, but it was definitely, and that you know we still go back every now and then, obviously, um, and it's really just never recovered. So you know we get firsthand observations of sort of you know what life is like in a former blue collar town yeah yeah well so what did you what what did you want to be when you were a kid when you grew up yeah so economist certainly was not <laughs> that wasn't one <laughs> it was i wouldn't you know couldn't even have possibly imagined what that was all about um i probably you know back then i wanted to be a lawyer um so i was very interested in sort of public policy in the news. I don't really, actually, I can't really even tell you why. Mm. I remember when I was, yeah, I mean, I used to watch the, the evening news every night. There was no CNN to be able to get you news from, but you know, uh, at 6.30, David Brinkley would come on the air. And, uh, you know, I remember my family routinely watching that every single night. This is also during the periods where, you know, getting during the Vietnam War, watching mm. body counts and then, you know, Watergate coming along. And, and I was, I just always was interested in sort of what was going on in the world. I, yeah. I, I guess they can't, my parents weren't uh, all that engaged politically. So I don't exactly know why I was, but I definitely was. Mm. Um, in high school, you were politically engaged. So like, what did that mean? That was like, um, you were just following the news or it was more than that? No, I definitely, you know, I was right. So uh, following the news, you know, regularly discussing with friends sort of political developments yeah. you know it was not sort of the you know the community development kind of right grassroots kind of guy you know that would not be sort of consistent with my personality right um but you know figuring out you know the sort of the concept concepts of you know inequality and disadvantage were things that you know always interested in me for as long as I can remember and sort of going to law school was going to be how I was going to, you know, protect the little guy. Mm. Um, that was sort of the goal. Yeah. Yeah. So in, where do you end up going to college? So I went to Cornell. Yeah. Um, Cornell, it was interesting. So, you know, my family's economic circumstances were, you know, not terrible. We were, you know, most, mostly we were, we were a middle-class family, except for the uncertainty and the fluctuations. Mm -hmm. Um, but when it came time to go to college, my parents were very clear to me that you are going to a state school, uh, public university. And so uh, I applied to Binghamton and Albany and Cornell has this, you know, if you don't understand, you know, you know, the structure of Cornell, uh, it has parts of it that are state supported and parts of it, which are not. Mm. Uh, and, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So I applied to the school of industrial, the New York state school of industrial and labor relations. Oh, um, and you know it's just it, like a more economics so it was you know it, it was economics is a little bit of what they do mostly especially back then this is a different world right like unions were a bigger deal in the 70s yeah um this is about union management relations oh I took it does it that that's kind of a fit for what your interests were a little bit it was a good fit for me i mean that was taking classes so to be quite honest my favorite classes when i started at cornell was uh was labor history oh i bet it was 
phenomenal professor, Nick Salvatore, uh, who, uh, you know, every time he opened up his mouth, I just was in awe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it turns out I wasn't really very good at labor history, <laughs> but I found it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I love listening to listen to hear him talk. And, you know, it's funny, every time we have an economic historian job candidate come in and they start talking about, you know, union topics from, you know, 1910s, I'm like, I am totally right on board. And my colleagues look at me like, what, is, who is this guy? Where did you come from? <laughs> um, so it was a very good fit for me. Uh, you know, maybe we can bring this, we can, come back to this topic later, but I, it, you know, in retrospect, uh, it is a very interesting, it was my history in terms of ac academic choices. Mm -hmm. It's a lot with the work that I'm doing now in the sense that like, you know, my parents told me I had to apply to a, a public institution and it was great. I'm certainly not complaining about Cornell mm -hmm. or Binghamton and Albany are outstanding institutions too, but I was completely limited in my choices. Right. I didn't get a ton of financial aid, but I definitely got financial aid at Cornell. Mm -hmm. um, and in retrospect, that I also understand that meant I could have gone to lots of places and paid exactly the same price. Right. But nobody knew that. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So do you get an exposure to economics at Cornell? Yeah, so the way the curriculum works is you take, you know, the, the focus is not in economics. I don't know if we just, did you lose me there for a second? I saw the light go out. Yeah. Um, so the focus is not on economics, but they definitely had economics in the curriculum. So yeah. I took you know, intro, micro, and macro, mm. um, which as required classes, uh, uh, statistics and econometrics class as required classes. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I think probably where I got started down this path, you know, I took those classes. I liked those classes. They were fine never mm. occurred to me to, to go into economics because you're still thinking law i was still oh i was going to law school till i was a senior in college i was planning on going to law school mm. so it's like five so the high school all throughout college you're going to be a lawyer i mean i took the i took you know law school lsats i was planning on going to law school mm. um i one of the required classes which i think is still exists on their curriculum is a, a class on uh, economic security which is basically a class on social insurance mm. it's just this one you know week of the workers compensation program and then a second week on occupational safety and health and a week on um, unemployment insurance and food stamps and every week was a different topic yeah uh it was really interesting because it was team taught at the time. So, you know, you get exposure to really the entire faculty. Mm -hmm. And it was at that time that I'm starting like, oh, wait a second. So now my interests are starting to align here. It's like, these are all issues that I care about. Right. And I'm taking the tools that, you know, I learned that you learn and, you know, this is just only, I think it was only 101 and 102 that were prerequisites for this class. Um, and thinking about like, how do you model decisions mm. individuals that are involved in these programs and how can we design these programs in ways that sort of can help improve mm. outcomes and you know the wheels kind of started spinning at that point like i was nowhere near ready to commit to economics by then but like i definitely was starting to think then that like well maybe you know i'm going to keep taking more economics classes mm -hmm. 
And then that's what got me to sign up for intermediate micro and intermediate macro. Um, and really, you know, now I'm sort of, I think it was like maybe the second semester of my junior year, maybe if it was even, could have even been the fall of my freshman senior year. Uh, I took this class with Olivia Mitchell, yeah. uh, who was at Cornell at the time. Now she's at, at Wharton. Mm -hmm. um, on the economics of uh, well, women in the labor market kind of class. Yeah. And it was a graduate level class, not for PhD students, but for sort of the master's students who were at Cornell and the ILR school. And I signed up for the class. Um, and, you know, we were running wage regressions mm. um, and talking about, you know, controlling for this, that, and the other thing. How do you really know it's discrimination when it could be, you know, selection and choice, blah, blah, blah. Um, Oaxaca decompositions, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there was an independent research paper requirement in the class. Uh, and basically that was the class. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm doing this. Mm. Um, and, you know, so at this point, so that's basically how I got into economics. It really was, was this class. This turning point yeah. with Olivia Mitchell's class. You changed my in in, in, you, in you having to write this paper. Yeah, it was funny because it was on you know a topic that you probably you're young enough you probably have never even heard of. It was, but it was a hot topic of the day called comparable worth. <laughs> no, I haven't um, heard of that. Yeah, and so it was this notion that we were gonna you know people should be paid according to the characteristics of their job, you know whatever. Um. Oh, characteristics of the job. Yeah. So you know. Um, working conditions, skill requirements, like basically like job, um, job characteristics, like, you know, there are people in personnel, in personnel human resource management that like, you know, catalog these things, like what do you need right. for this job and what do you need for that job? Right. And so, so like think about running regressions of wages on those things. Yeah, 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 right. Um, and how does that affect women's wages if you were to do that? So that was basically. Oh. So that's what you wrote the paper on? That's what I wrote the paper. That's why I was doing work on that kind of thing. I thought it was yeah. fascinating at the time. Yeah, that is cool. Um, and that was sort of the, really the, the turning point. And I'm like, okay, so maybe this law school thing isn't for me. Although, like I said, like that summer, I took the, the admissions test anyway. Yeah. But by that fall, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to law school. I mean, I did well on the test and I could have gotten into a good law school and everything. I'm like, why am I wasting my time doing it? Like, I found one thing that I know I really like. Right. What are the chances that this other thing I'm really going to like to? But did you think to yourself, since you had been so motivated to like help the, the help the little man or, you know, kind of be an ad, be this advocate. Uh, did you, could, could you see a shape for that in economics? Cause it's, yeah, it's not I was all, you know, from the social insurance, like, you know, how are we going to stop discrimination? How are we going to design these, these social insurance programs to provide the best benefits for the workers? Right. You know, um, you know, so in my own family's experience, like unemployment insurance was a big deal. Yeah. You know, how do we think about what's the proper design of a program? And, you know, it really is sort of in terms of the comparative advantage sense, something that was way better for me. I mean, I'm, you know, personality wise, I'm much, I'm much better off sitting here in my office in front of my computer thinking about these problems and how, how can I help 
from 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Same reason you were asking me before. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, campaigning door to door. Right. For candidates that I thought that I supported. That's just not who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, comparative advantage is a very useful economic concept, but it also can help a lot in your own personal life if you can follow right. it. Right. Right. Uh, and it started to make sense to me that it was, you know, and clear to me that like my comparative advantage is this and not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. By that point, though, I was way behind, right? Because yeah. uh, I was the sort of student, you know, so given what I'm telling you about my personal background, I mean, I was really good at math, but I hated math because I thought it was useless. Uh, what do I need to know this stuff for? And so, right. you know, I took AB calculus in high school um, and I got the advice that I should probably take you know, integral calculus when I first got to college. So the first semester of my freshman year, I took integral calculus. And like, okay, I'm done. Not taking any more math. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, it, you know, sort of annoy me because I was getting like really good grades in that class without really working anywhere near as hard as the labor history class, which I killed <laughs> myself at and did not do well. <laughs> um, uh, but now I'm like a senior in college and I, all I've taken is you know, two semesters of calculus. Right. That is not going to get you into graduate school, even back then. Even back then? What were they yeah. wanting back then? Uh, so um, certainly through, you know, linear algebra, differential equations, I did not have to take real analysis. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even have multivariable calculus at that point. Mm. Right. So uh, there's, I couldn't possibly have gotten accepted to graduate school. Mm. So it turned out, so I spent a fifth year at Cornell. Mm. Um, I worked as Olivia Mitchell's research assistant. Mm. Um, you, were talking, also, you were talking to her, you were saying, it's pretty clear what I want to do. And she, she begins to kind of tell you, the, tell you the, on board, how to yeah, get in. And definitely. And uh, Ron Ehrenberg too, was also in, very influential. Oh, yeah. So yeah. at this point you're like interacting with Cornell econ. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is like when you're in a huge school like Cornell, mm -hmm. um, you know, most of my friends weren't interacting, interacting with their professors, like anywhere as near as much as I was. Yeah. Right. But, you know, there reaches a point where you sort of got at a place like that, where you've reached a level of accomplishment where they, you know, they want to work with you, too. Yeah. Right. Um, and I sort of reached that point. So basically, you know, Ron and Olivia, both at that stage were, were completely involved in, in this process of, you know, providing me with advice. And, you know, I worked for Olivia throughout mm. much of this period. So I got a master. So I spent a fifth year at Cornell where I got a master's degree. Oh, you got a master's at Cornell? In industrial and labor relations. Oh, I didn't see that. Because I actually um, thought I saw, do you have two masters then? I have two masters. Uh, okay, so you get this master's at Cornell. Oh, yeah. And basically, my, you know, I didn't need the master's degree. I didn't really care about the master's degree, but it was just a means to an end. Yeah. And so mostly what I did was I took math classes. I took, I remember taking, you know, in the engineering school, I remember taking a stochastic processes class. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the math classes I talked about before. 
and then also get research experience because I was working for Olivia. I was, you know, doing independent research on my own, mm-hmm. um, writing a master's thesis. And, you know, it really got me to the point where by the time I got to graduate school, I was close to being adequately prepared. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not sure anyone's actually adequate. I don't think I've, yeah, I've like barely met anybody that was prepared for graduate <laughs> Certainly not psychologically, but that's a different story. (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay, so then what year is it? So is it like mid-80s? This is now 1986. Uh Uh, You know, I took GREs. I did well on GREs. Um, You know, I had several choices of good programs to go to. And, you know, it was clear. I I, I mean, I can specifically see Ron Ehrenberg. Like, you have to go to Princeton. Why? What was the reputation of Princeton? Now it makes total sense, but I'm just, what, what, what was its reputation at that time? Besides being like a top school. I mean, you know, Orly was, Orly Ashenfelter was there. It was very firmly established by this point as being, you know, a leader. Um, a David leader Carter, in what though? A, a leader in, in, in labor in, economics. In yeah. labor economics. Yeah. And by this point, David Card was a junior faculty member there and uh, I think at this, well, he's probably getting tenure roughly around then. I don't remember his exact mm-hmm. profile. Um, but, you know, he's like, these are the people you have to work with. You have to go to Princeton and work with Orly and David. Mm. Um, and, you know, at a personal level, it worked out for me, you know, uh, as well to be in the New York area. And so, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get accepted to Princeton with, you know, full funding at the time. Um, and so I went to Princeton. Yeah. What did you think? It, so what, what was you, what was your uh, expectations and how did they change that first year? And what, what, what was new and different? And Well, the first year of graduate school is, you know, yeah. expectations changed in the sense that like, I thought I was really smart, but I learned that that wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, and so you know I survived the first year of graduate school and and and, uh, none of my professors I think will rave about my performance (laughs) during that period although you know I am happy to say that you know Ben Bernanke taught me graduate macro despite the fact that I did not you know go on down that path yeah you've had two years in a row of a bunch of Nobel I had three Nobel Prize winners. Angus Deaton was there too at the time. Oh, that's right. Okay. David. Um, So in retrospect, like, you know, Ron was right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Wow. Um, So yeah, the first year was, you know, uh, we could talk about it some more, but I have to go to therapy afterwards. So we'll we'll skip that. (laughs) Uh, It was in the second year where you start, you know, really like the reason you go is because you want to learn from you know, these incredibly leading scholars about, you know, what there is in the world for you to study and how to do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so Orly and David were teaching labor economics um, and that was phenomenal. The one thing which I would say, which I did miss out on, which it was, I, I consider myself very unlucky because of this. So the year before me, David Card taught graduate econometrics. So, you know, I had a more traditional econometrics first year mm. sequence where, you know, you're learning asymptotics and probability limits and all, you know, yeah. seemingly unrelated regressions, whatever. Right. Um, the year before me, you know, David taught 
graduate econometrics. And so, you know, John DiNardo, Tom Lemieux, mm. Blaine Benjamin, I'm pretty sure Josh Angrist was in that class too. Um, they were learning econ you know, graduate econometrics from someone who was gonna teach them stuff that was useful for us. Right. Um, like and- what was different? What what was, how do you think he taught it differently? I mean, you know, I don't think we used that language back then, but essentially he was teaching them about identification. Right, right. Uh, he was teaching them like modern econometrics. Yeah, yeah. Applied modern econometrics. It's not like the, you know, I was learning theoretical econometrics. Right. And given my interests was, you know, not as useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, I felt like, the students who were able to participate in that class had a huge leg up because they were like in the weeds thinking about topics in a way that like, you know, I was getting drips and drabs of it. Right. I was still being advised by the same people. Yeah. Not like, you know, a rigorous full semester class. Yeah. Um, like what, what do you think name one, when you say that they're learning identification, uh, and it's practically useful. What what do you think you noticed your your classmates kind of what 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 was making their head spin in a way that you sort of noticed was different? I mean, it's hard. So it's hard to go back into the you know so much of the way we think about these things now. Yeah, is um, molded by what's happened over the last yeah. 20, 30 years in terms of econometrics to go back yeah. to think about, but definitely they thought about things differently. I, so for instance, for me, you know, uh, I, I should say by, you know, when I wrote my master's thesis at Cornell, you know, I'm, I was estimating translog production functions, like right. the elasticities from translog production functions. I mean, things that like, these are techniques that are long since dead. Mm-hmm. Right, and so basically in 1986 or 85 and 86, when I'm doing translog production functions, and in 1986 and 1987, you know, these other students of David's are learning like modern, but you know, they're light years ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So, uh, Mm. you know, that that would have been that would have been an unbelievable opportunity to have been able mm-hmm. to participate in that. Seems mm-hmm. like things worked out okay. I, I would say that basically I got to the same point or hopefully, you know, rough, roughly the same. It just took me longer. Mm, yeah, right. So what did you end up, so what did you end up working on? Yeah, so I mean, uh, so unemployment, my, my PhD dissertation was on unemployment insurance. But I would say that, you know, the you know the first paper in my dissertation, if I were to look back on it now, I think it's not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got some search model with some structural parameters and I use GMM to estimate the parameters and I simulated what would happen. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not. Yeah. Again, in the comparative advantage sense, there are people who are way better at doing that sort of thing. Right. Right. Oh, that's a really good, that's really good. Yep. It's not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's like, as a researcher, figuring out your comparative advantage, even within the world of doing empirical labor is a thing. Yeah. So, you know, this is a period of time when, you know, so Orly, you know, Orly is a, is a big personality, which I'm sure you are aware of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Orly had sort of these views that like he was, was willing to express, you know, regularly and loudly. 
And one of the big ones was, you know, hands above the table econometrics. Mm. So he would sit there and put his hands out, basically, you know, as if they're being put on top of the table. Like, you know, we should be doing hands above the table econometrics. You should be able to explain to people what you're doing and why it makes sense and why you're getting, you know, again, not in the same language as we would use now, but like, why is this a causal estimate? Mm. Um, uh, he felt like people were doing hands below the table. He, exactly. So if you're, you know, so probably, so my, the first paper in my dissertation was not above the table because, you know, you stuck the, you ran the program, it did its magic and out came numbers and where those numbers came from, God only knows. Right. Right. I, I couldn't possibly have explained to anybody what the algorithm that was being used, mm. how it spit out the numbers that it spit out. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I remember this interview with uh card and kruger and um he said uh kruger would read the new england journal of medicine and there was at the beginning of the articles something summarizing the research design quote and card made a comment to kruger saying i don't think anything i do could be summarized that short as research design and and it, it was like in the way that those guys were sharing it to the interviewer was that uh, it was like they made an effort to start doing that more which it sounds like is this above the table kind that's of hands thing. above the table like basically you should be able to explain to people i mean obviously not in the level of detail in which you know we yeah. think of these things but you should be able to explain to just you know an educated person who's not an economist what did you do right why does it make sense and why does it show what you say it shows right right if you can't do that you didn't do a good job. Right, 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 right. And so, you know, so for me, I would say that like, you know, it really took me, you know, I'd say it was more of an, the the transition from translog production functions to fully hands above the table econometrics was, you know, it was not instantaneous. It took several years to get to that point, but I would say definitely learn those lessons mm. um, and incorporated them. But, you know, by the time you got to the early nineties, that's when, you know, essentially Orly won. Did you feel like you could see around you in the 90s things changing? Yeah, definitely. When did you notice it? Actually, I'm torn between asking you this question and then this question I have and then asking you that question. But but yeah, when can you tell me like a moment when you were like, huh, this is he's won. When, when did you notice something like that? Well, so I think, you know, everything's gradual, you know, the world does not change quickly. Although this is, you know, we're talking about over the course of like a decade. Yeah. It's pretty quick, really. Right. Um, you know, you're seeing papers like, you know, so David was working on papers like the Marielle Boatlift, mm. you know, perfectly sensible. Um, and, you know, you can talk about like, what are the disadvantages of it, whatever, but like the basic idea of, you know, a drop of, Cuban immigrants into a particular labor market, what happened? Exogenous right. drop. Right. Um, you know, you've got, um, you know, this, this, these, these set of paper, and it's just like people are like, wait, that worked. Even the card Kruger minimum wage. And minimum wage, card and Kruger, right. like, you know, we was just like, okay. Well, the other thing is that, you know, trying to remember back, you know, the extent to which, people started paying attention to us yeah 
I think definitely increase. You know, I to I, the extent that we are able to, if, if we could, if you could explain to a reporter what you did, yeah, and the reporter can actually like write about what you did because yeah. he understood it and it got conveyed accurately, yeah, which is hands above the table, uh-huh. like that does wonders for sort of promoting your work, right? Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. When you can explain, I mean, that's one of the advantages of that quote, research design way of talking and thinking is that, that, that you can explain that to somebody outside. That's not in the, that's not in the economy. Yeah, All not of a sudden, like, and then it's like, they can write about it in the newspaper. Right. I mean, you know, and maybe that's, that may or may not be your goal to get yeah, that level right. of publicity, but the fact that you can, yeah, um, and the fact that like, you know, other people are saying like, well, you're reading about this research in the New York times. Yeah. And Cardin Kruger definitely ended up in the New York times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, other people are like, well, well, wait a second, maybe I should be doing that too. Yeah, right, right. Right, and then right. you're just starting to see, you know, you get people coming along like, you know, John Gruber and Hillary Hoynes and, and it's just, you know, mm. stick. it's just, it's spreading, right? And so, yeah. you know, it starts out at the, you know, I would say that, you know, Orly and David were, were, were big proponents of, of this sort of work. Mm. And even going back before then, it was like, you know, because Orly had other students who were very influential and in sort of move in moving this needle. So Gary Solon, Bob Lalonde, um, uh, you know, Alan came a little bit later, mm-hmm. um, not Princeton trained. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I should also say, uh, so Alan, Alan Kruger and I had Gary, so Alan Kruger was uh, also at Cornell in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Oh. Uh, and he was uh, two years ahead of me in the program. Oh, he was he was a teaching assistant for the intro stats class that I took. He wasn't my teaching assistant, but he was one of my best friends teaching assistants. Uh huh. Um, she had a big crush on him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's uh, like the, the the handsomest economist uh, in history or something. He's, he's, <laughs> so, you know, um, as this work is starting to get is getting disseminated and starting to become more and then it starts spreading sort of throughout into you know the discipline more broadly it just starts taking off and by the yeah. time you get to the you know mid to late 90s i'd say yeah well i wrote this is so this is something i wrote down i said uh and i have a feeling you're going to push back on this but uh, i'm going to say it anyway so I really wonder about this, if this credibility revolution really takes off in, in part because of one of your papers, uh, your QJE 1999 with Gruber and Steger, abortion legalization and child living circumstances, who is a marginal child, is probably responsible for the Donahue and Levitt 2001 QJE abortion crime paper. And, you know, as you retell the story, you know, about causal inference and you, you think in terms of Angus and Nimbins and Orly and Card and Kruger and Rubin and potential outcomes and all this stuff, but it was a huge event with that abortion crime paper and that abortion crime paper leads to Freakonomics and so forth. But really what a lot of people may not know is that your QJE and with Gruber and Steger is kind of laying out the argument 
that would lead to kind of Levitt and Donahue, which is that you've got this strategy of abortion legalization in the 70s. It's this instrumental variable strategy having an effect on the birth composition uh, and the marginal child being grown into poverty. And so just given these two papers separated in time, I just was kind of curious, first of all, what was the response to of people in general to your paper? Yeah. Well, you know, so, so first I want to take a step back a little bit and, you know, sort of give the history, because I don't think those are completely unrelated events. Uh, okay. Donahue and Levitt. Um, this all started, so I was in 1994. Uh, I had my junior year, my junior leave year at Wellesley College. And I spent the year uh, in residence at the NBDR in Cambridge. Mm. Um, and Doug Steger was there visiting that year too. Mm. Um, I had been doing some work on, you know, the impact of abortion restrictions, you know, and the grand scale of things, more minor abortion restrictions, Medicaid funding restrictions, sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time that Doug was, and we didn't really know that until we sort of, you know, got together. Um, and mm-hmm. we were both coming up with, in completely different contexts, this notion that like, you know, it seems like these policies are having an impact on reducing abortions, but they don't seem to be having an impact on births. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, is, I will say that from the out- outset, that was very puzzling to us because that's not what we were expecting. Right. Um, and then, you know, once you sort of think about human biology and how is that possible, it's because it's got to be the case that pregnancies are going down. Yeah. Um, and so with no birth effect, and then that raised sort of the obvious question, well, you know, well, what about Roe versus Wade? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, did that real, could Roe versus Wade have had no birth effect? If you just look at a time series of births, the 60s and 70s, like there's so much stuff going on, the birth rates just plummeting for, you know, lots of reasons. Mm. It's not, you know, you can't just do an eyeball once and say, oh, look, there's Roe versus Wade. It's not in the data quite like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what led us to, you know, we have a paper in the American Journal of Public Health, um, which I really like that paper a lot because I thought it has a you've got a double quasi experiment like basically mm. you know Calif- basically California and New York legalized earlier yeah you know smaller states did too but they you know the waiting thing it's mostly California New York right um the rest of the country legalized three years later yep and you just see this really obvious pattern that like there's a very dramatic effect of abortion of Roe versus Wade of abortion legalization on births. That was the my third chapter. My first econ pub was uh a uses the early repeal and Roe looking at long-term effects on gonorrhea. But I don't want to interrupt you. But yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting it's it's uh, a quasi it's kind of got this like weird staggering that lets you kind of tease out a story that is weird. I mean, that you can yeah. do it. And, you know, so uh, it was, you know, I was also at this point um, in the young labor public health community in the Boston area. You know, right. I got to be friends with John Gruber. And I remember there was one night, you know, he and his wife were over at our house. We were having dinner um, and we started talking a little bit of shop. And I was telling him this. I was telling him this result. And he's like, and, you know, he was the one who said, well, if 
births are changing that dramatically when abortion was legalized. It can't possibly be random. Right. I mean, it wouldn't, it makes no sense at all for that yeah. to be a random uh, uh, selection on who was born. Right. And like that dinner conversation led essentially to that paper. Um, now, John, uh, Steve What Levin, do you think of the outcome? How'd you, what, what made you think of those outcomes? Just for the sake of the listener, what are the outcomes that you end up looking at? Yeah, so we look at things, you know, so we look at things like um, uh, children's living staff. Did they live in a single parent household? Did they live in poverty? Did they live in a household headed by a welfare recipient? Mm -hmm. uh, infant mortality rates. Mm -hmm. um, I think there were other things, but that's things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, to be quite honest, so, you know, this is the sort of thing like, okay, so you have the idea, like what, what data can you use to test it? Mm -hmm. um, and so we were using the 1980 census. Well, the infant mortality rate, we've used vital, vital statistics, that's easy. But, um, you know, with like what's in the 1980 census mm -hmm. that we can use that would help us, you know, answer this question. The yeah. 1990 census at that point, you know, the, the kids were, would have, those children who would have been born we're sort of in an awkward stage because, you know, the 1990 census are sort of like 16, seven, like, you know, they're, it's hard to measure outcomes for them. Like what's the right outcome to measure. Mm -hmm. So we were sort of not really able to do that. And it wasn't 2000 yet. So, you know, that we were the 1980 census is what we were left with mm -hmm. now. So Steve Levitt, I think, you know, he, he was at the Harvard society of yeah. whatever this fellow yeah. sort of, he was always oh, in, he's in the area. He was there. Right. Um, so we were starting work on this project. He, he, so basically, you know, it's not, you know, there was some correlation in those papers and those ideas. Like there were conversations about. Oh, you knew paper. him. Yeah. Oh, so y'all were all kind of talking. Now, yeah. So I think, you know, I hope I'm not overstating this, but I'm pretty sure we were ahead. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we were well ahead in doing this project and he was starting to come up with this idea independently. I don't think it's not, it's not like he read our, our work and said, oh, I want to do that too. Right, right. Um, there was overlap. I mean, yeah, he's interested in crime. Yeah, exactly. He's aware of the massive crime drop and all this stuff. And so, you know, it's like, it sure. But so this, was like, this like, but yeah, he's kind of got this puzzle, right? He's like, why is... Why is crime dropping? It seems like that, that seems to be what part, I mean, I can imagine the, the, the world's colliding. I got this big puzzle yeah. and then these guys are talking about this massive birth event and uh, look at the, look at the, the timing of it. Yeah. I, and I want to be clear. I don't think we gave him the idea. Yeah. It's just that we were ahead of him on this. Right, 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 right. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, the difference I think is that, you know, what we were looking at, the things that we were looking at uh were sort of much less controversial topics yep the outcomes um crime is a much more controversial topic mm -hmm. and despite the fact that the underlying question of what we're asking is exactly the same mm -hmm. uh our work sort of got treated as an academic exercise um as a ex exercise in positive economics, which is what we were trying to conduct. Mm -hmm. uh, and his took on an interpretation that where people were thinking other things. Yeah, his is like, uh, well, it's like multiple dimensions. It's like his is viewed as uh, 
I mean, you might have people that are taking like, I don't know, this needs to be a public policy for some reason right. related to crime or something. But then it also kind of has the, when the book Freakonomics comes out, it, it seems like it also is the start of a little bit more of a negative reputation of the search for the natural experiment. You know, um, yeah, I'm not sure. So I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Um, it definitely, there was definitely negative feedback on the research. And I think it's because people started to take it into a normative direction, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think was intended. Yeah, no, I don't think but so either. It went in that direction anyway. And sort of once it goes in that direction, it's sort of hard to pull back. Mm. Uh, you know, once the cycle starts. Mm. Um, so our work tended to get not as much attention, which, you know, in retrospect, I think was probably a good thing for us. I mean, mm. it wor worked out great for Steve's career, but I also think it was, you know, very personally difficult for him, mm. uh, you know, to have people saying the sorts of things and about him and his work. Uh, mm. I actually don't know if I'm, maybe that's the thing. I don't really quite know. I can just imagine probably. So there was a lot of, you, you could hear through the grapevine, him being the target of a lot of non-academic style accusations or something. Oh, there was, there was, I remember the New York times article that was very, un, you know, I'm not sure if unflattering is the right word, but like, um, huh. there was tone. That's heavy. So, you know, I, I can imagine this was not a particularly fun, yeah, yeah. a great yeah. academic experience for Steve, but perhaps at a personal level, a very difficult one. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so how did you become so interested then in abortion and fertility? Because that becomes like a pretty big part. That's a, I kind of, I actually mainly associate you with abortion, fertility, contraception decisions, just because that was my research and that's kind of how I mapped into yours. Um, and I've followed you since, but you know, you, you have this history, you're a traditional labor economist too, in a lot of ways. And how does all this fit together? How'd you get interested in that? Yeah. So it's funny the way projects, you know, evolve <laughs> from completely unrelated. So I, I remember I was working with Dave Zimmerman, uh, who was a graduate student with me at Princeton. Uh, and he, I, I'm, you know, I took a job at Wellesley. He took a job at Williams College, and we mm. were the liberal arts college labor economists. Mm. Um, and so we had this sort of, you know, uh, kinship, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And so we were doing work together at the time on welfare policy. And I can't remember exactly what the question was we were trying to answer because, like, I remember it crashed and burned. Mm. But somewhere along the line, the the you know we're thinking, okay, we are we we're not on the right hand side of whatever regression we were running. Mm -hmm. We wanted the number of children someone had. And then we recognized that it was endogenous. And so we needed an instrument. Mm -hmm. And we're just like, you know, thinking, well, what would be a good instrument? Well, what about abortion policy? Mm. Right. And then this gets back to this earlier question. It's like, so we're starting to run regressions of abortion policy of, not, you know, childbearing on these abortion restrictions like Medicaid funding. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't working, quote unquote, as our instrument because it wasn't predicting fertility. Mm, right. I'm like, well, that's weird. That's not what I would have thought. 
Oh. And then, so we started running regressions on, well, let's put the abortion rate on the left-hand side. And like, well, it reduces abortions. Hmm. Um, Did that take you a long time to kind of, kind of, you know, when you have like strong priors, you almost don't believe the regressions or something. You just like, you kind of like, I'm doing something wrong. I have a coding error or something, you yeah. know? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, uh, we get to so people who do the sorts of work that we do. Uh, I mean, we're still human beings. Mm-hmm. We have beliefs and we have priors. Mm-hmm. It's not like you turn off your priors when you, you know, when you turn on your computer. Yeah. Um, the question is, at some point, are you willing to put yeah. aside your priors and believe what the data is telling you? Right, right. A lot of people have a very difficult time with that. I think it's easier sometimes. I mean, when I think about, I had it recently happen and I, and I felt like it was really important that I had co-authors because it just got to be like, like we just were just, we just really believed this one thing and we didn't know what this one regression meant. And this one co-author, it just, we, it just got it to be where that one regression just kind of shattered an entire previous kind of vision of the thing. And, and I just think if I just been by myself, I just, I don't know, like, you know, it's like, what does it mean to go where the data tells you when you like the antenna you're using to, to listen to the data won't listen or thinks it's saying something else or, you know, something. Right. But you have to, you know, at some point, you know, so if it, if your result doesn't necessarily match your prior, you probably look a little bit harder to look through your code and make sure you didn't make a mistake. Yeah, sure. Totally. Um, But you know, at some point you're like, you know, that seems like a real result. I know. I know. And then you have to start thinking, well, maybe you're not thinking about this problem. Exactly. Right. And then you have to be willing to sort of accept the fact that like you weren't thinking about it the right way in the first place. And maybe you need to change how you think about the problem. I know, I know. And so, you know, I would say that sort of all of my work on abortion policy sort of, it works that way. Mm. Uh, Like, you know, let's, what is the data telling me? You know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I I have this, this book on abortion policy where I sort of lay out these arguments about, you know, if you think about the world, you know, an abortion restriction is not an abortion restriction. And you've contributed to this, this research, so you know that, you know, in some sense, if you thought about my prior would have been that abortion restrictions um, lead to fewer abortions and more births. Mm-hmm. Um, that turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. Definitely leads to fewer abortions. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's sort of like this sliding scale, so to speak, that if, you know, for, and the, again, in the grand scheme of things, because these are people's lives and I don't mean to diminish what I'm talking about here, um, but for a relatively minor restriction, it seems like they don't have much of an effect on births. Mm-hmm. And if you thought about that continuum from that all the way to, you know, outlying abortion, yeah, where it's going to have a very large effect on births. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that continuum and what, you know, it's interesting where your work is, is like, you know, what's been happening over time is as those restrictions have getting been getting more and more severe, you're starting to see the literature turn over 
Mm -hmm. like the texas laws and whatever mm -hmm. you know where like basically all the clinics are closing there's no clinics anywhere near you yeah right it, it's funny because like you know the language that uh the casey decision uses it, uh you know in its ruling is called an undue burden yeah like, you know you can imagine sort of an undue but like that's the continuum right like basically that supreme court ruling i think has exactly the same conceptual framework is the way that I think about the problem that you like there's a tipping point so to speak oh right where you went too far um and you know rising rising marginal costs exactly and so right. like when you cross over that tipping point you start to have undue burdens yeah meaning women start having children that they would otherwise choose not to have right um and we started to see that with the more recent restrictions in the last you know decade or so where mm. you started to see maybe there's an effect on fertility mm -hmm. based on those mm -hmm. um and now we're you know moving into a different world obviously where we have you know outright and outright um recriminalization right in, in many states right, right. Uh, so we should expect to see large yeah we might be at the extensive margin a lot more places than was exactly. the case for ever since roe exactly even with, a, even with a lot of even with a policy, a lot of policy activity that was doing restrictions, they were nothing kind of non-binding parts of the decision making. Yeah, well, they were at least on the birth decision. Exactly, and they were nothing to the extent of what we're talking about. Yeah, now. right, right. You know, it's it's funny as a kid when you think about it, um, and maybe to like most non-scientists, uh, you know, professionals. As a kid, you you just would learn like the scientific method. Mm -hmm. But you didn't really learn like scientific production functions. And I'm kind of curious, you know, what do you what do you think about uh, your own uh, scientific production function when it as it relates to, quote, finding the right co-author? Because it seems like you've I was just kind of looking at your Vita. You have like these recurring co-authors like Melissa Kearney or Doug Steger and, you know, I don't want you to name names of anybody that, you know, with the didn't have was a negative <laughs> experience. Right. But like, but there's differences probably, you know, in the, in the, what it, what it's like to find a quote, good co-author for you. And it's like all wrapped up in this comparative advantage and scientific production functions, all stuff. I was just kind of curious, like, you know, what exactly has made Doug Steger and Melissa Kearney kind of, or, or, you know, or whoever you could use somebody else, as like as important for your own career as a as producing papers and producing knowledge yes that's interesting so you know i would say that you know the well the, there's a lot of elements to that to this answer so i think the first thing that needs to happen it works the best when you're co-authoring with a friend mm. i mean basically like you know um you know, academics lead a lonely existence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I sit here in my office all day, most of the time by myself. Um, it's nice to be able to interact routinely with people that you like. Yeah. Um, and so having a co-author, you know, that you like and sort of generally agree with about the nature of the work that you're doing, mm. and, you know, topics that are interesting to you, like all of that is, is a bonus 
Right. I think I'm trying to think of how many papers I've written by myself. Yeah. There are very few. It's um, hard to do. It's hard to push the fortitude that it requires to get a paper published. I don't think people really kind of realize the 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 seer the, the amount of non-cognitive skill that's involved of pushing yeah. it through the over the yeah, but I'm not talking about production. I'm talking about utility. Like it's more fun to write a paper. Oh, it's totally more fun. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so you know, you need that, and then there's on the production side. Um, you know, you kind of have to be. You, you know, you want co-authors who are going to challenge you, but you still should sort of be like-minded in terms of you know the way that you do your work, mm -hmm. the sorts of topics that you're working with. I mean, so basically where you have overlapping interests, I mean, I haven't written a paper with Doug Sager in a while just because like our interests have sort of diverged. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Melissa and I, who, you know, Melissa Carney and I write a lot of papers together, um, largely because we have very similar interests. Yeah. Sorts of topics that, um, you know, we've obviously established a relationship. She was actually a faculty member here at Wellesley College for a couple of years. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, so that's yeah. that's the connection. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, we got to be friends uh, and colleagues through that. Mm -hmm. And then when she left uh, to go to Maryland, we maintained that relationship. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, given overlapping interests and a personal connection. Um, and then once you start of, once you're on a roll, like, you know, we just work together very effectively. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, that is a work relationship that I would really not like giving up. <laughs> so what's been your, what's been a, you know, not, I want to say like your favorite work, you know, paper experience, not your favorite paper, but your favorite overall paper experience. Uh, what, what's one of them that's been oh. My Sesame, I love my Sesame Street paper. Oh, your Sesame Street paper is your favorite? <laughs> That's, that was so much fun working on the Sesame Street paper. I mean, like, it is rare for people in our line of work to be able to work on, like, a complete feel-good project. I yeah. Mean, that was just from, like, the first moment that it entered our head to write that paper. Uh-huh. By the way, you know, here, so we got to that paper because... Um, you know, we had done this work on um, the impact of 16 and pregnant, the TV show 16 and pregnant on teen childbearing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that that was a successful paper. It got published, placed very well. Um, uh, but, you know, when that paper came out, it got a tremendous amount of attention mm -hmm. in the media. And, you know, so, you know, we were a little bit vain. And I was following the press coverage and I just heard, this reference to, to a reporter say something like that, you know, as an offhand remark, that's some, you know, 16 and pregnant may be the best thing that's happened. The, the best thing that TV has done since Sesame street. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard that, like an alarm bell goes off in my head. Like, <laughs> well, what did Sesame street do? Wow. And I'm not joking. I Googled Sesame street history of Sesame street. Yeah. It took me to a Wikipedia page, which I, we're not supposed to acknowledge that we Wikipedia, but like, you know, <laughs> it takes me to this Wikipedia page and I'm reading through the history of Sesame Street and 10 minutes into this work that I'm work, quote unquote, that I'm doing, I see this sentence that says only two thirds of the country could watch it. Oh. I'm like, excuse me? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then so I started doing a little bit more research 
as to like why only two thirds of the country could watch it. And it starts talking about like television technology and you're too young to not understand this, but it's about VHF, TV, VHF channels and UHF channels and PBS oh. is more likely to be on VHF channels. And lots of people couldn't see the VHF channels. Oh. Like, oh my God. Like within, an, it took an hour before essentially the entire paper was written in my head. Oh right? my because God. Because you've got like this perfect natural experiment. Yeah. Of the way the television, the, the, the broadcast spectrum is allocated in 1950, mm. different regions of the country, which determined who got to see Sesame Street in 1969 when it- Oh peaked. my gosh, that's amazing. Right, and like, it was literally an hour before my, before the entire paper was written in my head. <laughs> oh, wow. And, you know, I called Melissa like hysterical, like I was so excited. And so it also turns out to be the case that the University of Maryland, Jim Henson, went to the University of Maryland. <laughs> so again, just pure coincidence, the Sesame Street, there was a Sesame Street archives housed at the University of Maryland, um, Children's Television Workshop. And so I flew down to Maryland, we went through the archives, and I spent like just a couple of days like going through, it was so much fun. Yeah. Going through all the files in the stacks of the library, yeah. reading about like what the people were thinking when they were creating the show. And, yeah. you know, what I really needed was the list of like what TV channels were, were broadcasting Sesame Street and what locations and particularly what channel number. Mm. Those of you who know TV tech, it had to be under channel 13. If it's channel mm -hmm. 13 or under, most people could see it. If it was over channel 13, a lot of people wouldn't be able to see yeah, it. Yeah, for us, it was 10. I think it was so uh, you were in a channel that 10. Was, that was where it was. Location. I was channel 24. I was also too old. Um, I was in first grade in 1960. So Syracuse didn't get, they didn't get Sesame Street. Well, so they would have gotten it, but the reception would have been very poor. Oh my gosh. This is amazing. Yeah. So that's the whole paper, right? Like wow. And it, like it was an hour on Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, it's so crazy. You think back to Orly's hands above the table being able to explain what, you know, uh, explain what you're doing, how that whole project probably is, you know, kind of birthed from that soil because that teaches you to think in terms of like immediately to recognize treatment group and control group. Right. And right? so like when I saw the sentence that said two thirds of the country, two thirds of the country alarm bell instantly went off. Exactly. Cause ordinarily you're thinking with a TV show, you're like, as popular as Sesame street. You're thinking everybody got it. How am exactly. I going to do this? Right. Oh, it's unreal. What well, I bet you were just felt like, uh, uh, um, Indiana Jones almost just like, it's like, I know I sort of felt like I won the lottery. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what unbelievable good fortune to, to, to have fallen down that path. And wow. So, and then, and then, you know, because now you're doing work, you know, you're talking about Elmo all day long, mm. you know, it was just so fun. And then you got to talk about it publicly and, you know, it was, the result turned out to be it had a positive impact. Yeah. And everybody just loved oh. Sesame Street did a good thing. Mm. And that was like just pure positive, that paper. Wow. Well, so um, does that kind of deepen your push into education because i kind of think of sesame street kind of haven't like they, they were engineered by like child psychologists kind of like mr rogers and sesame street i know did where it was like they, they were thinking about 
I mean, they, I know they didn't, you tell me they, I know they weren't trying to be like educational. No, they were, but there's like all those shows were just counting and, and there was just so much deep kind of, it was a hundred percent intentional. They were developmental psychologists right. looking to provide ways to, um, reach the masses to essentially provide early childhood education to people who mm. otherwise wouldn't have had access. This is very difficult for us to think back to what life was like in the 1960s when most kids didn't go to kindergarten. Mm. We'll start in the first grade. Yes. Right. Wow. There was some real visionaries that were. They were brilliant. I mean, they, and, and so, you know, the count, you know, the characters on the show yeah. had a role. The counts, yeah. he had a job, teach kids how to count. And Henson was really, he was perfect. That, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he, his, his, his puppets were, were, were just, were just so, you know, you don't even notice they're not people yeah. with the people. Exactly. So I guess like they just, yeah. they found all the right talent. Exactly. And like, you know, it's almost like, you know, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's almost like mad science. These people are just like doing this brilliant intervention mm. on tens of millions of people. Mm. Um who are now getting early childhood education for free. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, you know, as far as other, uh, you know, I've, I watched you over your career, you had a lot of co-authors like Melissa Kearney and Doug Steger. Were there other co-authors that you worked a lot with? Yeah. I mean, I've worked with, with several people and, you know, I don't mean to diminish the contributions of any of them, but I, I do want to sort of give a particular shout out to Robin McKnight. We've, we've, been doing a lot of work together uh, in the recent past and continue to do so going forward. Oh, that's great. Okay. What kind of work have y'all been working on? Uh, well, uh, a much less fun topic than Sesame Street. Uh, the work that we've been doing, a lot of the work we've been doing recently has been about the impact of school shootings mm. um, and, and, you know, thinking about the survivors of those events. Um, you know, what impact has the experience had on them? You, it's hard to imagine that it was a particularly good one, yeah. um, but documenting what those outcomes uh, have been, I think, is an important question. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So does this end up deepening in your interest in education? Because you have this new book out, A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students. Obviously, it's not about Sesame Street, but it's about education. And yeah. I mean, is this kind of like already the kind of path that you're on or does that you sort of like this, this is, you're just now becoming a lot more interested in young people's education at all, or? You know, I gotta tell you that basically the work that I do now, and so now I do a lot of work on financial aid. Um, and I'd like to say that it was part of my bigger vision and plan, you know, to, to delve into that, but it was pure, it was almost selfish. Mm. Um, you know, as a complete aside from all the work that I do on other topics, my kids got to be college age and I wanted to know whether I'd saved enough money for college. Uh, and, you know, schools like Wellesley College, where I work, charge $80,000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, and we provide financial aid up to pe for people with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of income. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I make a good living. You can guess roughly what I make. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just want to know, was I eligible for financial aid or not? Um, and it turned out that it was like impossible for me to figure out that question. Mm. And it occur then occurred to me like, okay, this is a problem because if I can't figure it out and I'm not low income and I have a PhD in economics, 
if I can't figure this out, there's a lot of people out there who are struggling big time. Right. Yeah. And so this concept or this issue of pricing, transparent, like pricing, college pricing. Well, I actually came into the pricing part later, the transparency part, I came into it first. And then, you know, at Wellesley College, I started doing administrative work. I said, look, this is a problem for us. Mm. And I got all of our college, all of the college's data. And um, all I wanted to know is like, can we just tell people, can I find an easy way to tell people whether they're eligible for financial aid? Right. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't, I think, be all that difficult for you to figure out exactly what I did. Like I ran regressions of financial aid awards based on basic financial characteristics, which um, gets labeled to other people as an algorithm because an algorithm is much more sophisticated sounding than I ran a few regressions. So I developed a fancy algorithm yeah. uh, to forecast financial aid awards. Yeah. And we started using it at Wellesley and we were just getting this incredibly positive response uh, from families who are like, oh my God, this is incredible because like now I know that, you know, for a place like Wellesley where, you know, we charge $80,000, but if you're low income, it's basically free to come here. People didn't uh, know. And people don't know. And so like, you know, you, if you want them- What to are you doing? You're just telling them? You're like, right? You're like, this is a part, you're sending out the information to them? So I developed, so at the, we, we, I developed- an online tool mm. um, so that like people can go type in basic financial characteristics, like nothing hard, like basically the easy stuff, things that can answer off the top of your head, mm-hmm. few things. And I've got confidence in like, so I'll give you an estimate. I'm going to give you a 90% confidence interval, although it's not called a 90% confidence interval mm. for the forecast, using the forecast error. Um, and students would use it and they'd be like, oh my God, this is, this is fantastic. Because Where is this? What's the, how do, how do they find it? Well, so now, well, so now I do this. So I started a nonprofit. So basically it worked so well at Wellesley. I, Wellesley, I started a nonprofit. Mm. And so I run this nonprofit. I'm the founder and CEO is my official title of uh, this organization called uh, My Intuition Corp. Mm. And if you go to myintuition.org, you will see my calculator and how it operates for 75-ish colleges and universities. Wow. Uh, so you should talk to your administrators in Baylor and tell them that they should be contacting me because you're okay, not- Okay, I will, I will, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. But like basically, you know, if you're gonna offer financial aid and you want low-income students to enroll, you probably should tell them. Yeah. That's, that doesn't seem all that complicated to me. <laughs> um, before schools would have these web pages that said we're really affordable, you should check us out. Right. But like the only number on the web page was eighty thousand dollars. They're not gonna do it. What's they're not gonna do? Yep. Um Hmm. and so what's weird about my work on financial aid is that like everything that I've done resulted from that. Right. As opposed to like, you know, the Sudanarskis of the world, they've done years of research. Like they know more about you know, their track record and publishing on financial aid is much greater than my track record on fi- pu- publishing on financial aid. Um, I got involved in this because of my nonprofit. Yeah. And what my nonprofit provided me was access to the admissions and financial aid leaders at all of these institutions. Mm-hmm. So I'm routinely having conversations with them, talking about what they're doing and like, they think as the head of this nonprofit, I'm talking to them about my product. 
Mm -hmm. which I kind of am. But what they don't really understand is that conversation is a much deeper conversation about economics and pricing. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out what they really are after here and what they're really doing and what's really, you know, driving the process. Yeah. Um, And then in my head, that gets translated into the economics. It's kind of, you know, it's funny. It's like you're coming full circle a little bit back to that comparable worth regressions you were running in college where you're getting these, you know, running these regressions and then trying to fit uh, equal characteristics and then saying what a a price would, a wage would be for equal characteristics. It's it's almost kind of like- interesting the way you see, yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but that basically is what I'm doing. Yeah. and in this case, though, a primary goal is the communication. Yeah, the communication. Right. right. So we, I know, I have, we provide us, we provide seven hundred thousand estimates a year. Seven hundred thousand. Yeah. Wow. So some of them are duplicates, you know, same person, but like five, six hundred thousand individuals are using this every single year. That must feel so rewarding. I, you know, I hope so. I mean, in the sense that I mean, for you, does it feel rewarding? Yeah, I mean, it does. Especially every now and then, I get a student in my class that I wouldn't be here if it weren't for your calculator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and to feel like you're having, this gets back to our, again, tying up these loose ends, you know, in terms of the comparative advantage, like I I firmly believe in, you know, providing greater economic opportunity and like, how is it that we can do that? Right. Right? Like I'm not going to start the training program that's going to lift up people. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's just not who I am. I mean, I right. believe in those sorts of things. I'm just, that's not, I can't do that. Yeah. I, I can do this. Right. So to the extent that I'm able to take the skills that I have. Right. And be able to use it in a way that's helpful and accomplish the goal that I want accomplished. Yeah. You know, that's meaningful to me. Yeah. This is the, your, your, your output as a, an economist and the just understanding your own understanding your own comparative advantage is, isn't just about you know getting you know making sure you have all the right ma- i mean obviously you got to have all the right math and all these things but it, it was is you, over time you realize you, you've been playing to your comparative advantage consistently uh well i guess i mean it's it's I hope so. it's really it's really encouraging well, ah, this has been a lot of fun, Phil. I, I've, I didn't, I've just thoroughly enjoyed um, our conversation. I really appreciate you opening up and sharing so much your, your, your life with me. The little bit you shared. Yeah, it was. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation as well. You know, um, it's it's weird to the you know when you contacted me and asked me to do this and sort of indicated the nature of the discussion. You know, it starts like a, you know, my brain's been going for the last couple of weeks thinking like, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) It was a good exercise for me to do a little self-reflection. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, you know, your book, Sex and Consequences, that was the first time I ever saw a, uh, had ever heard a diff and diff or saw it. We had a real traditional econometrics training back in 02 to 07 at Georgia. And I, I never, I, I probably did read a paper, but I just didn't remember it. But when I saw the diff and diff uh, table that you had, where I walked, where you walked me through exactly what it was calculating, it changed my whole life. It really, I was just like, 
Oh, that's what all of this is about. I didn't realize that's what we were doing, you know, and, and I, and it just, it's been 15 years of building on, uh, that kind of, you know, so like you, 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 what you learned from Orly and, and wrote in that book, it, it really was that, that was the, the key for me to have the kind of career I wanted to have. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, uh, Orly's message, I think is the right one. Hands above the table. Hands above the table. Great. Well, have a great weekend. It's nice to see you. You too. It's nice talking to you.